Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 168. In this episode, we're talking about virtue, agency, and Christian caregiving with Dr. Keith Dow. Dr. Keith Dow is the manager of organizational and spiritual life with Christian Horizons, a nonprofit charitable organization working with people with intellectual disabilities in Canada and around the world. He's also the author of Form Together, Mystery, Narrative, and Virtue in Christian Caregiving, published by Baylor University Press. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Stephanie K. Judd and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So, Steph, in this conversation with Dr. Dow, we focused on caregiving and some of the virtues that he understands ought to be informing a a Christian sort of ethic of caregiving, as well as some of the matters of agency for those who are receiving care. And we just had a lovely conversation with him. What were some of the takeaways that you had from our conversation with Dr. Dow? Towards the end of our conversation, we dove into a, a, an exploration about the, the tension between wanting to ensure that whenever we encounter another person, we're creating space um, for their own agency, even if it doesn't follow the templates that we're used to um, or that we're comfortable with. In, in our day-to-day lives. And he talks about, in his, in his book particularly, he talks about how some of the virtues that can equip us to do that are things like attentiveness and ensuring that we work the muscle of humility so that we're not always the one in control. But then also that needs to be held in tension with the fact that receiving care from another person isn't something that necessarily strips us of our agency it's what it is to be human receiving from another person is is deeply dignified and so I I really appreciated um Dr Dow's insights based on his professional career in this area and I think I think you'll really enjoy this conversation if you haven't already please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review And you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Keith Dow. Well, Dr. Dow, thanks so much for joining us. It's nice to be here. So we're really excited to have a conversation with you about caregiving and agency as we think about uh, disabilities further in this conversation. We want to begin by hearing about your backstory and how you got interested in this space uh, and what what led you into it. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's it's a meandering journey. It's it's not one that I anticipated. Uh, Kind of growing up, I never really saw myself as... Um, being concerned or like uh, intersecting with a lot of people with disabilities. Looking back, of course, I can see I can see that happening at different points in my life, but it's not something that really rose to my consciousness as I was thinking about career paths or what have you. 
Uh, and then I got interested in uh, philosophy and theology and started studying philosophy and just got right into it and was, was very excited about all this. And uh, when I was completing my, my degree in philosophy and realizing I didn't have much of a career uh, outcome in mind for that. So uh, it actually was a godsend, and I'll, I'll use that word, when somebody else in my church came alongside me and said, hey, Keith, I think you would be great working in this field of intellectual and developmental disability. And at that time, I, I really hadn't considered it as a, as a career option. I think there's many people out there that probably haven't thought a whole lot about that being an option. And we can maybe even get into some of that and, and some of the reasons for that. But I hadn't thought of myself as being an overly caring and compassionate person uh, <laughs> and uh, certainly not considering myself a bad person. But at that point in, in my philosophical journey as well, I was really wrestling with all right, so we talk about ethics, we have these great systems of ethics and Christian ethics and, and all of this, but where is the actual outcome of that? How do you put that, how do you translate that into real life? And um, for me, a lot of the emphasis on that came through Soren Kierkegaard. So it's not, it's not just enough to examine the doctrines of Christ, but what does it look like to have a real relationship with the truth and the truth being Jesus. And so I was in this place of openness to what God would have for me, knowing that I, I, I needed to do something. I couldn't just think about things all the time. And then to have this friend come alongside and say, hey, I think you would be um, good for this field. And so I got involved with it. And it uh, turns out that it, it was a great fit. I mean, maybe not right off the start. And if you ask the, the people that I support right off the start, they might say, uh, yeah, Keith really didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> but, but over time, uh, I, I grew to, to meet people and get to know um, what they loved, what they uh, wanted to do with their lives and be able to accompany them a little better in that way. And, and I'm just thankful for their grace along the way. So anyways, that uh, I carried on with that for a while, worked in recruitment for a while. And then an opportunity to step into this role um, came through where it's kind of a pastoral theological role with the organization. So we are the largest provider of developmental services in Canada. And as a Christian faith-based organization, um, that meant thinking about, okay, well, what does it mean to, to work closely with the government, but also have this faith basis? And it was a really neat opportunity just to connect that uh, philosophical and theological study with the work that I was doing and, and kind of the culture as an organization, um, which then connected me with Hans Reinders, got me involved in the, the PhD program with him, uh, which resulted in a dissertation, which resulted in this book. So that's kind of a, a shortcut at the end uh, there, but uh, um, it's all part of my journey. Thanks so much for sharing, Keith. And it is interesting the way in which often the way that people get involved in this space is through left, you know, left field um, kind of unexpected turns in, in our life. When you say when you got involved in this field, can you just um, particularly um, say what kind of, what kinds of roles you were, were, were doing? And I know this comes out in your book a lot, but what, so day to day, what, what did your job look like? For sure. So when I started, it was uh, working in a home uh, where we supported uh, five uh, five men at that time uh, with uh, intellectual and developmental disabilities. It's always difficult to put, um, you want to be careful about putting like grades on disability, but they did require a significant level of, of care, of accompaniment um, in order to live the lives that they were looking to live. And so uh, I worked with a team of people in that home 
um, and then was involved in some administrative and HR roles within the organization. And now it's more of a, a pastoral and theological role. So both working with uh, direct support em employees and professionals on how do we support the spiritual needs of people who use our services uh, and thinking about that cultural piece, right? What does it mean to be a Christian faith-based organization? And then grief and loss support as well. And then really involved in the theological space too, through the Institute on Theology and Disability and other um, types of organizations like that. Yeah, I think that um, one of the interesting things that comes out in, in the first part of your book is that you look at the way that we talk about vocation and whether there are any distinctives offered by the Christian tradition in the way that's used. Um, and something I'd like to hear from you is about the way that calling and vocation is used, particularly in connection with caregiving. Can you talk to us about that and the way that it kind of goes in these two directions of transcendence and eminence? Right. Yeah. And that was definitely something I was working through when I first joined the organization. And I spoke a little bit to, to that in terms of the ethical dilemma I found myself in, right? How do I put some of these things that we're talking about this, whether it's uh, Christian compassion or, or whatever you want to call it, how do you put that into practice? Um, but then as well, as I was, as I was working direct support and as I was in recruitment, I noticed so many people coming in and uh, to apply for a job and they already had somebody in their life with a developmental disability. And so they might've been providing care uh, for a son or a daughter or a sister or what have you in their personal life and then coming to work with us as well. And I just found it so compelling that people who, who basically were already doing this full time wanted to be involved in this, this work um, for their career as well. And, and you really, as you started to talk to people and get to know them, and in my work with grief and loss, I really see that devotion to a sense of calling. And you see it in the, the, the Christian sphere. You also see it kind of from a secular perspective as well, where people find a real value in their work um, as they're working alongside others. And so in my book, I, I use phrasing called to and called by that for many people, this the sense of being called by someone um, is, is really crucial. For me, it was more like I'm being called to this line of work um, by where I find myself. And then as you as you go through, as you get to know people, that really becomes a relational connection, which is at which is at the heart of my book in the sense of how are we all connected? What is that? What is that sense of draw? What is that sense of calling? How is God calling us uh, to one another through the world and through our, our circumstances and our journeys? Thanks for that, Dr. Dow. Could you tell us uh, about your book, Form Together? Can you tell us a bit about you know what you're trying to accomplish in that book, what its thesis is, some of the general points that you that you make in it as well? Sure. So in in my work as a direct support professional, uh, I noticed that a lot of the language that we had, a lot of the language that we were wrestling with was. Uh, professionalism, right? What are the ethical codes? What are the expectations? What's the documentation? What's the accountability? And there was a, a real system in place in order to monitor compliance. And it it certainly was a part of the picture. I don't want to, to minimize that. But my question as a theologian was, what are the resources there from the Christian tradition that, that help inspire this work, that help direct this work, and that hopefully provide that, uh, that moral or that ethical impetus for people who are involved here 
uh, to really serve people well, to not to not overcare, if that makes sense, to not get in there and prescribe things for people, but to enter in in a good way and a healthy way. Um, and, and I also realized that from my philosophical studies, for instance, that so many of our ethical traditions rely on the intellect. They rely on us figuring everything out. What's the best course of action? How does rationality fit into this? How do we understand people's intentions? Uh, and just as I was accompanying people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, it, it really is ableist to say, oh, you can't live a moral life. You can't come alongside another person in a good way if you can't figure this out, <laughs> right? And, uh, and so that really left me searching for what's, what's left and has the whole Christian tradition kind of succumbed to this idea of the, the hypercognitive and the, um, and so that's why through my book, I'm kind of asking the question, where can we find those resources? What do we look for? And then towards the end, getting into, so what are the virtues of care? What are the virtues that we can look to that don't rely on this hypercognitive ability to be able to figure things out, but really look at our interactions with one another, um, paying attention to one another, uh, being in, in grief and situations of lament with one another, uh, entering into each other's story. And, and we can go into those in, in more detail later, but that's kind of kind of the arc uh, that I found as I was working alongside people. What did you find when it came to what what resources are available to to us, given that so much of, as you say, so much of the Christian tradition, and this is something that we've spoken about with a number of our guests, it has this hypercognitive bent, which is under uh, you know, it has this, these foundations in, you know, the image of God being connected to rationality and and some of the dangers of that um, and I know that you talk about that but what what are what are some of the 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 headline unique resources that are on offer when you go deeper into the Christian tradition right and I do uh, early on I do rely on um, the image of God being kind of a grounding theme uh, especially because it's touched on by so many different disability theologians and I'm sure you've had those those conversations before it is it is a real source of inspiration but I also find that we can take it too far right and again you probably got into this a bit but when you start talking about oh you need this for the image of God or you need that for the image of God so what I took from that was how do we deal with mystery how did we deal with opacity how do we deal with a lack of of recognition so as it concerns uh the image of god i deal with uh emmanuel levinus for example who really gets at the moral or the ethical draw that we have uh to one another as in the face of one another and in the face of god and so that that in itself isn't maybe specifically christian but then as we look at how that works itself out in the life of Christ, we kind of move from the Imago Dei to the imitation of Christ, right? And so how do we look to what Christ does in interactions with one another and have that same posture, have that same approach? And, and for me, it all goes back to that example that, that Christ gives us, both in the things that he did 
and in the ways that we maybe weren't able to recognize everything that he was doing through his life, right? In the unrecognizability of Christ in that sense, that he comes as a baby, that uh, he does not have an appearance that we desire him. Some of those, those aspects of stigma, right? That there is, there's a real closeness there, but there is also a distance with Christ. And so uh, coming to understand how that operates in our interpersonal relationships was, was important for me as well. So as you're talking about calling and, and vocation in relation to caregiving, um, I'm wondering if we could talk as well about um, the sort of calling and vocation of those who are being cared for and specifically the agency of those who are who are receiving care. One of the themes that has recurred throughout um, this series has been the the issue of agency. When we were doing um, some textual analyses earlier in the series, we we talked with uh, Kylie Crabb, who focused on the role of impairments in early Christian texts um, for for protagonists as opposed to peripheral characters who are often there as as uh, Megan Henning talked about as as a moral test that are, they're, they're they're really just there to sort of uh, show us something about the protagonist who does not have a disability or an, mm-hmm. or an impairment. And just thinking about this issue of agency um, in, in terms of, in terms of caregiving, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that dynamic and how you, how you engage that issue. Sure. That's a, that's a great question. And one that I wrestle with uh, all the time as well, even as I, I was writing this, knowing that uh, I felt like I had something to share but it wasn't it wasn't my story or it wasn't just my story, if that makes sense. And I think uh, too often people and and I'm guilty of this at times as well, um, too people too often people run right past that and just start telling the story anyways and kind of inscribe a story on somebody else's life. And so there's there's kind of a, a methodological way in this book that I try to set up the stories told that as I talk about my my journey with one person or, or another, and I, I change their names and, and whatnot, but where I am telling a piece of it, I'm telling what I can see of it, what I can see of God working through our encounter, through my own life, but I never want to claim that story. And I'm I'm grateful that there are so many accounts given, I kind of use that language, accounts being given by um, disabled theologians, disabled advocates these days, where uh, where people can speak directly to their own story. And, and for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, part of the challenge is we really just don't take the time to listen, right? Then we're looking for, we're looking for uh, bite-sized pieces, stories that we can put up. And that's why you see um, so many inspirational stories floating around the internet that, oh, isn't this great that this person uh, achieved this goal or, or what have you. But it takes so much time to come alongside someone and, and get to know them. And I know in in the final years of my um, mother's life, she uh, had a, a brain tumor, and and one of the challenges there was what does what does her story look like now? That before she would, um, in large part, you could point to all the things that she did for us as kids and the ways that she invested in in our lives. She was our teacher. She uh, you know provided for us in so many ways. What does that story look like after she's not? Uh, she, she's not sure about her schedule anymore. She's not sure about what she can do in the kitchen. She's not sure about all those things. I'm, I'm very thankful that she continued to remember us and who we were uh, through the end. But it, it really struck me, and it wasn't until pretty late actually in my 
my writing of this book that, that I recognize that these, these stories that we tell connect so closely to my own life and my family as well. And so, uh, yeah, by all means, wherever we can, uh, helping people to share their story in different ways for themselves, the aspects of the story that they want to share, and that might look very different from what we're looking to hear from them, right? But you also see that working out in the disability advocacy space where, uh, let's be honest, often we look for those really comprehensible stories even here. They're easiest to share, they're easiest to, to talk about. Um, uh, the Disabled God uh, by Nancy Eastland. Uh, it, it kind of foundational work, and, and I'm sure you've talked about it before, where she says, you know, this book, uh, I don't know how this book connects to people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So we're not gonna focus on that. And, and on the one hand, I think it's great that she did that, that she said, I, I recognize I don't, don't know really what I'm talking about there. But on the other hand, we do need to ask those questions because otherwise you end up with kind of a hierarchy of disability as well uh, in, in, uh, from, from those who can tell their story in a way that other people can easily comprehend it um, to those who maybe have a more difficult time uh, doing that in the language that we would expect them to. Yeah, and I think that 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 um, the bifurcation there um, and is something that's present even in um, not in the theological space, but just in the political advocacy space. In that it it often does lend itself towards people with physical disabilities who can still participate in the the hyper rationalist cognitive kind of world um, in which those who can um, present a well reasoned argument are, are favoured. Um, and you know, I think that that it it is a real a real challenge to know how how to. And I think that this is um, something that Brian Brock um, talks about in in his kind of wrestle with talking about his son's um, Adam's story and bearing witness to their witness mm -hmm. essentially. And and I, I appreciate the way that you 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 hash out some of those. Um, the difficulties and the barriers we face whenever we're trying to um, um, bear witness to the stories of others who cannot necessarily um, package their their story in ways that are um, readily recognisable or digestible to us. Can you talk a bit about some of those barriers in a little bit more detail? Yeah, for sure. And and I want to pick up there as well on this sense of what we what we look to as being rational, what we look to as making sense, and and this is even within the Christian tradition or in philosophy or what have you, uh, because I think I think that's part of of the problem as well, is that it's not necessarily, and you just have to go on Twitter for a couple of minutes to realize that it's not necessarily the rational arguments that are compelling people. Uh, perhaps more and more so, perhaps it's always been this way, but so much of our lives are driven by uh, instincts, assumptions, uh, projections. And, and so the, the middle part of my book kind of deals with these myths of transparency, right? This these lies that we tell ourselves about how much we know and how much we understand and what's actually driving us, right? And that's that's part of the questioning I do of, of moral theology and moral philosophy along the way is if we're, if we're building these systems based on an assumption that we understand people's intentions, then we already need to back up, right? We, we already might be a little lost there. Uh, and so when we encounter somebody else, we, uh, we know from research that uh, probably within the first tenth of a second, we've already made some kinds of 
uh, judgments about them, right? Based on the way they present, we've already kind of put people in a box and we really only tend to confirm those judgments from there. And so, you know, whatever they say from that point, um, unless it directly contradicts what we've already come to believe, we'll kind of wrap that into our assumptions about the person themselves. And so, yeah, I think that's part of the project here is to say, uh, that an act of Christian humility is to start to appreciate all that I don't know about myself and my own story that I tell about the people that I encounter in my day to day. And then, and then about God, um, and about what God's story looks like, how do, how am I open to kind of the movement of God in the world around me and the people around me, um, and even being opening to, to questioning maybe some of my own theology, and I know I'm, I'm grateful for this series that you're doing because disability theology really helps to confront some of those norms that we've we've established. It really helps us to confront some of those things that a lot of people take for granted as part of theology and say, well, I don't know if that's really the case. I don't know if that's really what God is calling us to, that maybe um, God is calling us to listen to some other voices and, and change the direction we're headed. I'd love to hear from you about this idea you mentioned a few times before about encounter. Can you, and that, that in your book, that is one of like the linchpins of, of the way that you unpack caregiving particularly. Can you talk to us a bit about what you comprehend in the idea of encounter? Right. That's a, that's a great question. And uh, one that I continue to, to wrestle with. And I think I wrestled with throughout the course of this book. And part of the reason for that, uh, we get into it a bit with, with the idea of call and vocation, right? Is that we can never quite put our finger exactly on um, what that draw is to one another. That there's a, uh, I think Levinas does a great job of analyzing the, uh, the, the ethical obligation we have to one another, uh, but it's, it's, it's confusing, it's astounding, it's mysterious, and, and it's, it's difficult to describe what it looks like to really get to know somebody. And um, so that's, yeah, like you say, that's a really essential part of the book. And one of the most interesting parts as well from a theological or a philosophical perspective, because it doesn't tend to get talked about a lot because we can't, <laughs> right? And so uh, we are talking about in that encounter, you tend to start to form beliefs about the other based on appearance, but based on presentation, uh, whatever. And then you start to put words to it. And so if you're always trying to back up to get at the, the heart of what it means to meet one another, who's created in the image of God, um, that God is calling you to in a way, then you're never actually going to get at that. So for me in this work, it is the, it's the heart of, of moral obligation to one another. And yet it's, it's really difficult to articulate what that means. Uh, and I think the idea of being, being formed together that each, each of us holds a part of one another's stories is, is a piece of that picture as well, that I don't know fully who I am, until I get to know who you are and you can share, um, you know, what God is, is teaching you about me. And um, so that's beautiful. It's also really hard because it confronts the myth of individualism that I can just come along and tell you who I am and, uh, and we can go from there. That it means that I have to be really attentive in those relationships to, to listen to your story and to hear how yours intersects with mine. 
And how does caregiving in terms like in the kind of more professional sense, um, but also in the way that, you know, people in, in our domestic lives often find ourselves in situations where, you know, we're, we're caring for a family member or a friend. How does that highlight particular aspects of encounter in ways that are distinct from other forms of encounter in our everyday life? Well, I think uh, we talk about how our sense of expectation gets disrupted, right? And uh, and so often our interactions are pretty much on script. So I go into the grocery store, I pay for something, I know how I'm gonna have a brief conversation maybe about the weather or whatnot, and I carry on. And And it's surprising when you look at it, how many of our interactions are like that. But when we, when we are kind of confronted, I'll put it that way, with whether it's for ourselves, we encounter an in- injury or illness or what have you, or a loved one encounters that, we enter into very different relationships that we might not be prepared for, we might not be used to, right? And that can be really challenging in a church service, for instance, where you expect people to come down and sit quietly in the pew and stand and, and sit and <laughs> what have you, um, to have somebody that requires care through that or who might express themselves differently, uh, shout hallelujah at all the wrong times, uh, whatever it might be, that that confronts us, that shakes us up, that makes us question, that makes us uncomfortable, right? And so what do we do with that? Do we, do we go towards that or do we back away? And I'm sure you've heard through the course of this podcast the stories of people with horrible rejections from church that... Uh, are pretty unbelievable, right? When you think of our call to love our neighbor as ourselves and to to follow Christ in that way, it's pretty unbelievable when you hear how horrible these stories are. But there's a kind of fear there about entering into these kinds of care relationships where I don't know what's going on, right? And at Christian Horizons, we we accompany churches in, in thinking through aspects of accessibility. And I often say that a big part of that is just giving people some words so that they can go through the fear and actually get to know somebody. Once you get there, it's not so bad. Once you start to realize, okay, we're all in this together and I don't know exactly what's happening, but I know this is important. I know God is calling us to to care for and minister to one another, then it gets a lot less scary. But I'm also really interested in what the church does with that and What's brought us to this place in in the first place of like being so standoffish when it comes to people, let's just say people in need, and that might be ourselves that's in need, right? That discomfort. Um, We see it a lot in in grief and mourning that we don't have the words to say. And so we give some kind of pithy comment and and move on about, oh, they're in a better place or, you know, whatever, whatever the the statement might be. but how, how has it come to this place when at the heart of Christianity is, is, uh, is Christ who, who died, who suffered on behalf of, uh, of the church, of the world, right? How have we gone to this place that we're so uncomfortable with difference, that we're so uncomfortable with disability, that we're so uncomfortable with not having the answers? Um, it's shocking, but I think it also makes a lot of sense Uh, When you just see how even sociologically how we tend to offload a lot to whoever will take it right and and I'm speaking as somebody who works in a social service agency. Right. And, And we believe that this is good work. We believe that people should be paid and honored for the work that they do. 
But I also believe that the church has a role to play in that, in coming alongside people as friends, uh, as uh, fellow disciples, as um, you know, being ministered to by whether it's people with disabilities or people with chronic illnesses or 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 what have you, and and so as kind of my pastoral side is how do we become part of the picture that God wants to paint for the church, right? Um, I love the phrase a landscape of care, a landscape of care, and so asking you know what does that look like now? I think through the pandemic we were kind of shocked at how quickly our systems of quote unquote care fell apart, right? We're like, I was kind of depending on that. I thought it would just be there and now it's not there anymore. Uh, and again, that's a, that's a shock that causes uh, a real disruption. And, and for the church, kind of from a theological perspective, I think it really begs the question, well, what was God maybe calling us to do all along that we've dropped the ball on, right? And I think there's so much more that could be talked about there in terms of how we work in our communities, how we see our role in uh, in supporting one another, in knowing each other's needs, and having those difficult conversations. Because we're all going to be there at some point, right? And and the question is, are we going to be able to turn to our uh, siblings in Christ to be able to meet those needs, or are they going to run away from us? And and sometimes I think it's a fifty-fifty uh, flip of the coin. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that um, it's it's interesting that as you describe those kinds of sociological movements towards specialization, professionalization of all these kinds of things, which originally, you know, in previous generations would have been provided within the family unit, um, and it, it's interesting to think about. Well, on the one hand. <laughs> we're so wedded to ideas of efficiency and economies of scale. And, and honestly, I think part of it is, is a, a, a fear of doing the wrong thing. So like you describe those conversations that people get awkward about, well, what, what, what do I, what do I talk about? We'll just, just be a human to, to, to them. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that some, when, when you're equipping people in your line of work, you, you say, you, you give them the words I'll give them some a, a stub to start start conversation. What what do you what do you recommend out of curiosity? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. Um, and at the heart of it, I would say that it's it's all about humanizing one another. That we create these walls of uh, okay, this is something new. And so I don't know what to say. And so like you were getting at as well, I don't want to say the wrong thing. Uh, and so often that translates to, so I'm not going to say anything at all. <laughs> right. And so you can see how, how the best intentions there can, uh, can go sideways pretty quickly. And so sometimes it involves just talking about language. And we know that language is, is always changing and, uh, and adapting and, uh, and let's be honest, none of us always have the right words. <laughs> I don't even think that was the right way to phrase that. Uh, but so talking about, you know, for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, uh, it's kind of come from the person first movement. And so uh, often folks would prefer to, to be referred to as people uh, with a disability rather than a disabled person. But hey, if you know your name, if you know their name, that's uh, that's an even better place to start, right? And so, again, kind of humanizing that this is an individual person with their unique likes and and dislikes, 
um, talking a little bit maybe about identity first conversations too, which often gets at the heart of, well, how does this person relate to the disability? Because it might not be the way that you relate to it. Uh, being uh, Using a wheelchair to get around might be something that for you is kind of frightening. Like, oh, I wouldn't want to do that because that hasn't been your life. That hasn't been your experience. For this person, it might just be how they get around and, and not really... Um, not really something to make a big deal of. So find out what it is for the person, where they're coming from, what's important to them, what the barriers are, right? And I think there are some pretty, there are some pretty obvious common ones that we talk about in terms of uh, physical accessibility or, or communication or what have you, but people might be encountering barriers that you just wouldn't foresee, right? And so getting to know them and kind of uh, walking alongside them is, is so important in that regard. As you were talking before, I think that um, one of the compounding factors in our apprehension around how do we encounter people that are different to us is the fact that so much of our life has been stratified into people that are just like us, um, whether that be in our church services, you know, you, you stratify into people that are your same age and stage. And there's, and and even like politically, you know, we only associate with people or have conversations like or deep relationships with people that agree with us or share the same values as as we do. And that 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 mus muscle of um, relationship across difference has atrophied in in ways that are catastrophic for our common life. Um, and so that that invitation that's presented when whenever we encounter people that are different to us is something that yeah it might be uncomfortable but it's a good discomfort um, and I think that that's that's something that's come out in a lot of um, is something that to me um, came out from a lot of the the work that that comes through in your book. Um, one of the pivots that you um, kind of lap. One of the places that you land in your book is the idea of, well, is there a distinctive ethic of Christian care and what are what are some of the virtues that are associated with that? Could you unpack that for us, please? Yeah, I'll I'll certainly do my best. Um, I think it's a continued it's a continued question because on the one hand, we don't want to discount uh, we don't want to completely discount professional ethics and the work that's being done there. We don't want to discount other religious approaches and kind of the depth of of thought and ethics there um, but obviously for for the christian it comes back to jesus right and and so as we look at the way that uh, jesus encountered people and i love how, how some of the episodes in the series have um, dove into that a little more what do those encounters that jesus had look like and one of the things that i love about that is that Jesus doesn't just set up a list of do's and don'ts, right? Jesus does not set up a professional ethics of care for all those who identified as Christians or, or set up a form for us to fill out when we're trying to decide something. He gives us the example of a, a kind of a human interaction, a personal interaction, which really puts us on the spot, doesn't it? It doesn't give us a ready answer uh, in, in situations. And again, that's beautiful, but it's also hard. And, and you can see the church's desire to kind of set up all these systems as quickly as they could after the fact in order to say, yeah, this is the do's and the don'ts of the situation. 
And I think this for a reason that Jesus does that. It's for a reason that Jesus told stories and parables and things that have a lot of mystery at their heart. And it's a, it's the reason why disciples would come to him afterwards and say, we have no idea what you were talking about, Jesus. Can you help explain that to us? Right. And, and I think that's also the value of our conversation here, conversations in books like this and disabilities studies and disability theology, that as we get to know each other and as we hear how how different experiences have been received by different people, we can start to piece that together. Right. That we can't bring into it a full understanding of this is the right way to do things. This is the wrong way to do things. But we need to figure that out along the way. Uh, and none of us have have the full picture of that. Um, so yeah, I certainly, and it seems like the obvious Sunday school answer, but I certainly look to uh, to Jesus in that. And even the fact that uh, Jesus didn't come as was expected, right? Did it, Jesus didn't come uh, in glory to take back the kingdoms of the world, I think really reveals to us that, uh, that Jesus continues to come to us in ways that we least expect it and in people uh, who we would least expect to encounter Jesus in. And um, sometimes that's ourselves, right? Sometimes Jesus is working in our, our own lives in mysterious ways. And and we need other people to come around us and say, hey, you know, I, I really felt encouraged the other day because you brought a sense of peace to that conversation that, uh, and that can be that can be an opportunity to give thanks to and to, um, to really learn how to work together in, in humility. Something that I've been wrestling with um, over a long time, but particularly as as we've been um, talking with people in this series, has been the kind of tension between wanting to be careful to honour the agency of every person you encounter and create space um, for them in whatever way that looks like. Um, But also I think that there's, Uh, there's been a discomfort in me around um, almost a a resistance to being recipients of compassion and care from others Um, in the sense that, you know, my experience, so I've got a physical disability and my experience of that has been um, what's very, uh, I've resisted it every every step of the way mostly, but it's been um, one in which, you know, reciprocal um, dependency to me seems to be at the bedrock of relationship, both Mm. human and divine. And so on the one hand, um, our need presents a fertile opportunity for um, intimacy with other people and being known. So on the one hand, yes, I want to say, yes, of course, um, you know, people with disability are not just passive recipients of care, but also is that such a bad thing? As in like as in like receiving right. care from one another. I'd love to know what your thoughts on that kind of the tension between those two things is. No, I think that's a really good question. And it's uh it's one that each of us wrestles with on a personal level and an ongoing way all the time, right? And we see it in in direct support as well, where too often people, quote unquote, providing care, define themselves by that provision, right? That I'm a giver. And and actually a lot of caregivers, um, and I'll, I'll speak for myself at times as well, can be really bad at setting boundaries and saying, 
no, I, I need to take a break or I need to set a limit on this because I'm not able to give anymore. I need to receive uh, from people and from those around me. And so there are some, there are some really tough things in that question um, because when we talk about vulnerability, so, and, and there have been people that, um, you know, I, I think rightly so have emphasized that vulnerability gets a bad rap and that we maybe shouldn't be so scared of it. But at the same time, just saying vulnerability is good <laughs> really doesn't answer the question. It kind of it keeps those systems in place that keep certain people vulnerable and not others. Right. If we uh, if we just accept vulnerability. And so I think each of us has this tension between like establishing more agency. We've been talking about agency a bit like how can how can I be more of an agent in this way and then recognizing um when i need to receive and that that's okay that's a that's a meaningful part of the human experience and uh and jesus greatest work was essentially in this act of receiving in this act of of passion right of having something done to him not the conquering hero kind of an uh, approach right so i think there's a profound theological truth in that that's just really difficult to grasp on a personal level and and maybe becomes easier when we see that we also have gifts to give right and so christian horizons vision uh statement is that um people with disabilities belong to communities in which their god-given gifts are valued and respected and i think one of the challenges is that if we if we present a certain way as maybe having a certain kind of need then like we were talking with about with first encounters we tend to get defined by that right that's the place that we hold and so we we not only need to be a community that is willing to meet needs but a community that's willing to acknowledge gifts and contribution right because i think for each of us we all have we all have needs and um in in some cultures and and i'll maybe speak to a masculine culture <laughs> it can be really difficult to acknowledge needs you come across as weak and so how do we confront some of those stigmas some of those barriers tear that apart so that we can both receive encouragement and celebration of yeah i love that you chipped in and uh helped out the other day and and sunday school or you helped out the other day and bringing the food for the potluck or you know whatever whatever it might be and those are very churchy examples but of whatever might be in our own life um so that when it comes time and we all have that time that actually i could really use a casserole right <laughs> i could really use somebody bringing food by my place we're not uh we're not too uncomfortable to ask and and the temptation can be to put that on a singular individual, right? To say, oh, you need to be comfortable with expressing your needs or um, you need to recognize the gifts that you share. But I think that's also a community responsibility that who in our community doesn't have their gifts recognized or maybe we haven't created spaces for those gifts to be recognized um, and, and who in our community maybe isn't able to express their needs because of the expectations um, uh, conscious or unconscious expectations that we've set for people. Yeah, I think that that's so that's so helpful, um, Keith. And I think that being comfortable with not being in control of a certain relational dynamic, like I know for me, I'm much more comfortable giving care than receiving it as a, as a default because you know of of whether it be the way that I'm constitutionally made up or 
whether it's the way that the communities I'm most comfortable in are geared, um, it feels more. It feels more in control. I feel more. Um, um, you know, you're, it's more. It, it's easier to anticipate the outcome, um, and that's why the the being open to to both, like both are good, but it's it's having the dexterity to be comfortable with both. Um, that is a real. It's a real challenge, and it requires like the 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 ethical resources to be comfortable with both and open yourself mm-hmm. up to being being receiving from other people um, in ways that you don't expect. It's wild. <laughs> it's it's a real. <laughs> it's a real. Like, it's quite a ride. Um, but I think. <laughs> It's, I don't know, in, in my experience, it's been one that is worth the discomfort. Absolutely. So you're you're talking a little bit about control there. And uh, I think there are really good reasons why we want to be in control and why our culture is structured for control as well. So I've been reading Hartmut Rose's The Uncontrollability of the World. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but uh, so he takes the, the word um, uncontrollable, basically from theology, this idea that God is outside, beyond our control. Uh, I, for me personally, I think of C.S. Lewis and Aslan is not a tame lion, right? Like <laughs> that, that kind of idea. But he's done a really interesting thing sociologically here, where he says our culture is increasingly focused on control, right? If you think of control of information, control of uh, our bodies and how they move and our health and all of these things. And so, but the more control that we have, the more unpredictability we also add to the system or we can't always anticipate the results. Uh, and so if you get into bioethics or, or what have you, that one, one change might result in a whole bunch of other changes that you're not familiar with. Or with information, for example, we have all this information at our fingertips, but uh, the increased information tends to only add to our anxiety because we know that there's so much more we could be searching for or know, or, or you think of your news, right? You have access to all the news in the world. So, so potentially you can know most of the major things that are happening, but then it's just entirely overwhelming and destruction. So his point is that we need these spaces where we experience a, a degree of agency, but also a degree of uncontrollability. He uses something like snow falling for an example, where you can experience resonance because you're not in control of that snow falling, right? And for me, that points back to God, that points back to kind of agency at the the heart of everything that that is. Um, But for him, he especially acknowledges that in our human relationships, right? Where every time we encounter somebody else, there's something about that that is outside of our control. And it can lead to this experience of resonance, right? Where you discover something new. Uh, and, And I mean, I think that's a beautiful picture and I'm, I'm the type of person that likes to have things under control, that likes to plan out everything in advance. So it's a good, a good challenge uh, for me too. And a discipleship challenge, I would say, to look for those spaces of resonance rather than for those spaces that I control and know everything that's going on. Yeah, that really reminds me of, and I, I'm terrible at remembering where I've read something. So somewhere in the last little while, I read something in which it was talking about how f- fundamentally as humans to be human is less about fiat and more about response, which I really, I really like that because yes, there is a, we do have agency over how we respond, but fundamentally we are responding to um, 
the other people we encounter, but primarily at its heart, the the divine, um, the divine call that calls us um, into being and into, into relationship with himself. I was just going to say uh, Viktor Frankl has a quote too that uh, in between stimulus and response there is a, a space there is a choice and in that uh, in that space is our is our freedom basically and I'm kind of slaughtering that quote but um, the idea there being that there is so much freedom when you realize that you don't just have to respond the way that you always have but you can make new choices you can respond in different ways and I think that's that's really beautiful what you brought up when you're talking about how encounter requires of us to not just participate in existing kind of relational tropes. How does that fly in organisations when we're often reliant on policy um, in terms of the way that we um, we organise ourselves in in kind of whether it be in the business world or in community life? Um, how how does that translate so when you're talking about how in you know having an ethic of christian care requires of us um you know to not necessarily rely on um the kind of relational templates that we're used to how do how does that work in in those kind of christian organizational settings yeah, it's a good question. I think you can look at it in different ways, um, depending where you're coming from. Like, so the answer would probably look a little different in a church than it does in a Christian social social service organization. Um, and a lot of our systems, or a lot of our policies, are set up to avoid some pretty horrible things from happening. Right, they're they're set up to have a measure of of control over the situation, and I think many are really needed and valuable but that also needs to be paired with recognizing the humanity of each person within an organization and so um, within a, a, an organization like ours it provides a kind of care there's the there's the person who um, the service user if you will the person who pays for the care and basically the boss right <laughs> when you want to think of it that way if um, so the person with the intellectual disability they're they're looking for a good home in which they can live their life and they're paying people to provide those services and so hopefully that kind of upsets the power dynamic a little bit some too that they are the ones in in charge and so there has to be a degree of autonomy there and that person might decide to do something that doesn't fit within policies existing policies uh, and positions right it, a lot of things come down to money as well how do you how do you access the money for instance to get to a new place or to get transportation or to figure out how to have the right staffing in order to support this person to do this thing right and so there are times where i think there's that we have to look at the disruption this person is asking to do something new right they want to go to the water park and we don't have liability insurance for that or we don't have the staffing in place in order like those are the kinds of boring questions that we get down to well just <laughs> and part of you wants to say like just go to the water park like um but we need to have the kinds of flexible policies and systems that say okay what are our values? What is what is driving us here, right? And well, what's driving us is um, wanting to support this person to live their life because we believe that they're created in the image of God, right? And so if that's our value, then it's a matter of saying, okay, now what do we need in our policies in order to be able to accommodate that? Um, similarly, I think with uh, 
professionals, right? The professional systems are great, but you also need each person to be empowered with, okay, what are our what are our core values here? What is driving us as an organization? So if they come up against those policies, those very well-intentioned policies that stop somebody from doing something that's important to them, they have a mechanism to say, you know, as a as a moral agent, and they probably wouldn't call themselves that because I've never heard anybody call themselves that, but, you know, I think we should do this because we say this, right? So there has to be those mechanisms. And let's be honest, they should happen in a timely fashion too, to say, all right, our whole system needs to change. And, and then if you go back to the church context, I think if you have somebody come into your space who uh, worships God in a different way, so we had um, we had a, a a communion service on Mother's Day, and we're a, so we're kind of an Anabaptist organization, a, a, a church um, very similar to to many Protestant evangelical churches. Uh, and it was it was on Mother's Day, and we had somebody sitting at the front who uh, has some kind of intellectual or developmental disability. And we got to the end of the service, and he just shouted out like, "What about Mary?" <laughs> and, and for us, that's not something that really occurred to us in the course, course of the service. Uh, and maybe something that uh, subconsciously we would put to the side as, oh, this is maybe more of a Catholic belief or, or whatever. But in that moment, it was just so profound. Like, I, I wish we could have given more space for that person to, to get up and talk about, well, what about Mary? Like, what did that look like? Like, that would bring so much depth to the service that we were having. And so what do we do with those interruptions in the service? Whether it's somebody not being able to get in, somebody not being able to get onto the stage. Like, and so we might have policies and procedures that are all fine and good, but we have to look at what is what is driving us. Is the is the love of Christ compelling us in this moment? Or are we so bound by our policies and our sense of control and our sense of not wanting things to get out of control that we aren't even able to welcome uh, somebody who's a member of the body of Christ into uh, into ministry? Yeah, I'm a moment of confession. I'm a lawyer. And so a lot of the some of my work is involving, you know, you know, drafting a lot of those kinds of policies. And I think that it's it's an interesting impulse that um, drives a lot of organizations is wanting to eliminate risk and being afraid of um, what, you know, part of it is a very good impulse to um, want to protect people that need protection. Um, but also um, there is this um, fear and that kind of paralyzing effect of fear, which means that we often relinquish our own agency and our own ability to make, you know, navigate difficult decisions something so my my father was in um, aged care for um, his for his professional life and one of the things that he was really passionate about was not allowing not just deferring to policies and not allowing policies to um, to kind of expand and fill the whole decision making um, framework but leaving room so that you can take risks for people at risk um, that was his kind of um, one of the things, and it's it's really hard to do. So, um, yeah, I think that it's it sounds like um, I, I feel like the work that you've done is a really important piece in equipping people to to do that important work and do it well. Thank you. 
Dr. Dow, thank you so much for for joining us and uh, engaging us in this conversation about uh, the virtues uh, of caregiving and and the mystery that's uh, Im- embedded in that dynamic and and this uh, topic of agency as well. Um, and just really appreciate all of your insights and thank you for the great work that you're doing. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you.